Drug-resistant bacteria are one of the most uh, serious public health issues that we face today. They cause tens of thousands of deaths, millions of illnesses, uh, and that's just in the United States. And the numbers are sure to climb unless we take uh, some very clear, concrete, and coordinated action. In just the H1N1 pandemic, the 2009 swine flu, depending on who, how you want to describe it, as many as 55% of the deaths worldwide were from bacterial infections. Um, if we go even further back to the 1918 pandemic, this is the, the mother of all pandemics. Uh, a paper by our own uh, Dr. Tony Fauci uh, reviewed a lot of old records, and they concluded that almost everyone who died from that was actually from bacterial infections. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs. DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Jim Greenwood, and you're listening to I Am Bio. Last week, you learned about the worsening pandemic of antibiotic resistance that threatens to kill more people than COVID. We interviewed a company CEO with a successful new antibiotic to treat pneumonia, a common secondary infection of COVID. The CEO told us how hard it was to get a new antibiotic to market and how a government decision to invest $285 million to stockpile his drug for future emergencies was a lifeline to this company. Today, we're going to talk about another lifeline being extended, Last week, 20 major biopharma companies announced a $1 billion fund to help generate up to four novel new antibiotics over the next decade. And on Capitol Hill, we got closer than ever before to seeing an antibiotics carve-out to bundled hospital payments, which will empower doctors to prescribe more effective, newer antibiotics. The provision was passed by the Senate, but stripped out in the conference bill of the last COVID supplemental. But the push has momentum, and it has raised the hope that at the end of this dark tunnel on AMR, maybe there's a light. Our next guest, Dr. Gregory Frank, is Bio's Senior Director for Infectious Disease Policy. Welcome to I Am Bio. Glad to be here. Thanks for doing it. Well, Gregory oversees Bio's campaign called Working to Fight AMR, or the acronym WTF AMR. So my first question, Greg, is how can it be that so many people are dying from AMR, yet the pipeline is inadequate, venture capital is nearly impossible to come by, and the policy problem remains unfixed? I mean, what the fuck? Thanks, Jim. Uh, it is, a, it is. I think, the quintessential question. You know, this is such a, a big public health issue. Um, so many people are being impacted by it. Um, but we find that no one's really talking about this issue. Uh, and I think the first thing that comes to mind is when I think about why uh, AMR is such a big issue, no one talks about it, is we're, we're sort of like a, a frog in a pot that is warming up and boiling. Though someone actually told me frogs will jump out of the pot. I'm still going to use that, uh, that analogy here. Well, it depends on how deep the water is in the pot. Apparently. And... It's a problem, but it's very diffuse. You know, there there are AMR infections all over the uh, over the U.S. 
Uh, but it's not like there's a big concentration of patients or a big outbreak uh, that really grips, you know, public attention. And, you know, like, for example, COVID or even Ebola or Zika um, over the past few years. And so it's this very slow developing pandemic, if you will. Um, and it just appears to be so diffuse and under the radar that no one really appreciates how big of a problem it is. And, and those that do sometimes feel like we're, we're, we're screaming into the wind. And I think precisely as AMR uh, rates are increasing, and we're seeing almost up to 160,000 Americans may be dying from AMR every year already. Um, and that would place this as a third leading cause of death in the US in the here and now. So I think a lot of people think about AMR as a problem, you know, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, I'd argue it's a problem right now. Because resistance is never going to go away. Um, every product we use, no matter how appropriately or how appropriately targeted, it's good. the bacteria and the fungi are going to escape it. So we always have to have sort of this never-ending arms race of a pipeline of new medicines that are always keeping pace. And precisely when resistance is becoming a really big problem, the pipeline is uh, absolutely in free fall. We don't have nearly enough products under development. Uh, and those products that are under development, which have great science, great innovations, great companies working on them, no one wants to fund them because the commercial market uh, for, for antibiotics is just absolutely broken. Um, it is a market where you want to, in a, in a crux, pay people to develop a product and then use it as rarely as possible. And while that makes really good sense from a public health standpoint, where we want to make sure we reserve our brand new shiny antibiotics for absolutely when they need them, in practice, what that means is a company uh, can't even make enough money on that product just to keep the lights on. Um, and uh, one story I heard from a, from a company that, that went bankrupt is they told me, Greg, if you had given me my antibiotic for free, an approved antibiotic for free, I would have still gone bankrupt because just manufacturing it and selling it is too expensive. That's how little we use these products. And uh, at the end of the day, what this means is we have a pipeline that's uh, in really bad shape. No one wants to invest in it. And despite, I think, a lot of people appreciating this problem, we really haven't advanced those policies that, that are needed to solve it. So where we are is we have scientists who can fix this problem, we have scientists who can figure out how to create you know, better antibiotics. We have biotech companies that are more than happy to do it. They see the public health need. Um, they want to get involved, but they can't do it without any resources and the market incentives just aren't there, and they're not going to be there unless some things change. If we waved a magic wand and we said, all the problems of AMR, the commercial market, we fix it, we're not gonna see the medicines we, we need today for another 15 years, because it takes a long time to develop these medicines. It's really hard to do. We're gonna see lots of failures. We're already years behind where we need to be. So the longer we wait, um, the more expensive and difficult this problem is going to, to be to, to, to fix. These companies are, are fighting you know, the good fight, if you will, uh, despite all signs saying you will lose your shirt in this space. And they're doing it because they know this is an important issue. They know what they're doing is, is going to really save lives. Um, and all of these companies, these are very smart people. They can go into immuno-oncology or some of these other areas where they know they're going to get investment and bring patients, uh, you know, other medicines, but they're doing this because they care about the issue. And I think it's time for policymakers really to, to put their money where their mouth is and help support them and ensure that they live to fight another day because these are the guys that are going to be bringing those antibiotics we need in 10 or 15 years. You have a lot of expertise, these guys. They spent years developing and understanding how to make antibiotics. Um, and when they go bankrupt, as some of these companies do, you lose all that expertise. It's gone. 
they don't come back to this space. And so it's really important that we take action. Well, it kind of reminds me of the whole issue of rare diseases for, where for a very long time it was apparent that there are diseases that affect handfuls of people or just a few hundred or a few thousand people in the world and uh, terrible diseases that uh, called out for medical interventions and new innovative uh, drugs uh, to treat them, but the, 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 the economics, again, didn't work out. And so Congress looked at that and said, well, we have to create incentives so that it, it will make economic sense for a drug company to invent these new medicines uh, and save all of these lives. And they did that. And as soon as they did that, everything changed and the investment continues, you know, apace in those areas. Uh, so here we have a lot of the bigger companies have gotten out of this, this you know, antibiotic space for the reasons you just mentioned. But there is some good news. 20 big pharma companies announced a billion dollar fund to support small companies working on high priority antibiotics. So can you give us some details on the AMR Action Fund? I think the, the best way to describe it is, you know, these companies that have left the space um, are really putting their money where their mouth is, knowing that um, this issue isn't going to solve itself. And the Action Fund is, as you said, a $1 billion investment um, that's really trying to bring two to four new antibiotics to patients in the next 10 years. We have all this great innovation just languishing on the vine. This fund is really designed to help sort of support the best and the brightest minds and the products in that pipeline and really help bring them to patient. And most importantly, buy time for policymakers around the world to really look at those policies that are needed to um, really fix the market. We need to be really uh, cognizant that this fund is not solving the problem. This fund is buying us time to solve the problem. And now the ball is back in the court uh, uh, of policymakers, Congress, the administration here in the U.S. to really help us solve the problem together. I think the other key thing is this is a fund that's going to be helping support companies. Many small biotechs, uh, you know, they don't have a lot of the expertise in how they would approach clinical trial design or how would they approach commercialization and develop a team. And, and one story struck out at me. I, I spoke to a small biotech and I asked them, when do, you, when do you get a commercial team? When do you have someone that tells you, okay, here's how we're going to approach selling this product and, and getting it approved? And, and they said, Greg... We don't even do that until we're 99.99% sure that we're going to get approved. Because if we, if we don't do that, we're going to run out of money too quickly. And so this is a great example where this fund can help provide a lot of that in-kind expertise, if you will, to help companies really plan effectively and sort of uh, avoid all the minefields that many others have, have found through trial and error. What kinds of projects and, and unmet medical needs do you think will get uh, the closest look? The fund is really going to be focusing on exactly as you said, you know, what are the, the scariest unmet medical needs? And both the, uh, the World Health Organization and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention here in the U.S. have sort of uh, threat lists that highlight um, what are the scariest big bugs. And I understand that they're going to be looking at that list and really looking at sort of what's under development and think about what meets those needs. Um, what can be a really novel product that's differentiating itself and really making a difference on, uh, you know, the mortality of these patients? Good. So Senator Casey from, Senator Casey from my state and uh, Senator Cassidy were at the fund's uh, Zoom launch, and they, they noted that a billion dollars is a serious commitment. But they have a bill that could transform our global response to the AMR challenge. So what are the most important things that their bill, the Disarm Act, would do? 
the Disarm Act is addressing a very particular issue um, in, in uh, the antibiotic space. And I'm going to have to sort of uh, give you a little background on the problem that they're trying to solve before I tell you how they're solving it. And in hospitals, you know, I think the, the first thing we want to realize is these products are being developed. They're not the oral antibiotic you get when you go and have a cold or, or you know, maybe pneumonia or something. This is the serious IV you know, formulations that you're getting when you're in the hospital and nothing else is working. So these are going to be used in the inpatient setting for seriously ill patients. Um, and in hospital, you know, the way uh, reimbursement works there is everything for treating a patient's under a bundled payment. The intention is try to ensure that we're being as effective as we can uh, with the medicines we use and, and really cut cost. So let's just make sure everybody knows what a bundled payment is. It used to be that um, you, a patient goes to a hospital and uh, regardless of what their what their diagnosis is, we get billed for this drug and this this doctor coming in and then this room and then this procedure and so forth. Uh, and it, that sort of was a system that tended to create incentives for you know, over treatment or or too many procedures and so forth. So in an effort to curb costs, basically the federal government said, look. We're going to basically pay you X number of dollars. So you walk in with, patient walks in with this particular uh, diagnosis. We're going to pay X number of dollars under normal circumstances to treat that patient. If you can do it for um, less money than that, um, you make more profit. If you if it costs you more for a particular patient, you're going to lose money. But on average, you'll make out. Um, and so they bundle all these things together. Do I have that about right? It's better than I could ever do. Um, and that, that's exactly the intention. It's, it's designed to sort of ensure we're being as effective as possible. And I think that, you know, the quintessential thing of a bundle is it's to a, a particular treatment. You know, you come in and you get a procedure, like say surgery, or, or you're being treated for cancer, and you have a bundle for that. And I think the, the first problem we see with resistant infections is anybody can get an infection. Anybody can get an infection, any kind of procedure. If you're in the hospital for anything, you're at risk. But for antibiotics, um, one antibiotic we looked at is spread over 55 different bundle payment systems. So what happens is they're just so diffuse, the bundles never change in response to them. And what happens in practice is, even though these are quite inexpensive antibiotics, because they are more expensive, hospitals have a strong disincentive to try to treat patients uh, with a brand new antibiotic, even if it is the, the most appropriate and there's a great example of this, uh, where um, there is a very old antibiotic. It was dis discovered in the 60s, it was approved by the FDA. I guarantee you it would never be approved by the FDA today. Um, this is before they had lots of uh, standards on efficacy and safety. And it's called colistin or polymyxin. And uh, while it was discovered in 62, uh, it fell out of use pretty quickly because there were so many more safe uh, and effective antibiotics that came out uh, to the market. Because the big thing with these antibiotics is... Um, they destroy your kidneys. Um, and so why would you ever give someone that that uh, destroys their kidneys, you know, a medicine? But by nature of no one using this for 50 years, when it became the point where we were starting to encounter patients who nothing worked for, they went back and, and looked into the filing cabinet, you know, the, the old uh, uh, stock room, if you will, and found that they had this old antibiotic. And when you have a choice between A, I won't treat you and you will die, and B, I will try to save you with this antibiotic, but you may be on dialysis for the rest of your life. It's a pretty easy decision. Um, so we've seen colistin use has been uh, something that, that's risen over the last five to 10 years. But the, I think the real kicker here is over the last five years, three new antibiotics have come to the market, innovative antibiotics that are very safe. They do not cause that kind of toxicity. Um, they can treat the same exact patients. Um, and what we found is no one's using them. 
And what we've concluded is because of that bundled payment, creating a strong disincentive, the hospitals tend to try to treat them with generic antibiotics for as long as possible. And even when there's cases where a new innovative antibiotic is the right choice for that patient, they, they don't use it because they're going to lose money on it. And so this is a, a problem for a couple of different reasons. A, patients aren't getting access to treatments they need. AMR is already a scary enough problem out there. And we add on top of this that, you know, for the worst case scenario for patients in the hospital, they may not be getting the treatment they need. And we know that getting the right treatment at the right time makes all the difference. That's the first challenge. And the second challenge is we mentioned that there's a huge market challenge. It's really difficult to make a return on investment. So if a company has sort of a a market or a volume of patients that they could be using their product on, and no one's using it because of this reimbursement uh, issue, we had that second thing where this is contributing to those market challenges and the ability of these companies not to survive. And so this is sort of the state of play in the hospitals um, and a problem that we're trying to solve. And it, 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 it works its way upstream. So obviously, as long as the hospitals and the insurance companies are uh, incentivized to, to not use the new and more expensive um, antibiotics, then the, the investors look at that and, and they say to the companies, we'd love to invest in you. Uh, and I, we think your antibiotic candidate here could be a, a great, great service to humanity. But um, if it's not utilized, you're not going to get paid for it. We're not going to get our money back. So it's not going to happen. So that's the problem. So how would the Disarm Act change the, this dynamic and change the incentives so that we can get these new products? The three most important things this bill would do is, first off, it pulls a qualifying uh, antimicrobial product, an antibiotic or antifungal that reaches the, the qualifying criteria, out of the bundle. So the intention here is the patient, uh, the hospital is getting paid, uh, is being made whole, if you will, if they receive this sort of brand new antibiotic separately from the payment. And if they don't need it, they have the bundle payment and they're okay. And the intention of this is the decision of whether or not a patient should be getting a novel antibiotic is solely in the decision of their attending physician and not a, a decision of whether there's dollars and cents at play and whether the, the pharmacy budget of the hospital can afford it. And B, we think it will you know, help this, this market challenges these companies are facing. And I think the third most important thing uh, this bill is doing is it's ensuring that we don't create the perverse incentive where hospitals start to prescribe this just to get more money. And so there's all this strong uh, guardrails in place with the bill that ensures that hospitals have to report on their antibiotic usage. There has to be very strong and robust stewardship programs. And we hope that that combination of these three things is really going to create, uh, as you said, a bill that addresses the patient access issue and helps really uh, provide a signal from the U.S. government that they're serious about addressing the market challenges. Um, this will not solve everything, but we think this is a very strong opening salvo to really uh, get us on the right track. Well, it makes all the sense in the world, and the Congress really needs to get on it. And Senator Cassidy uh, is a doctor. Uh, he noted uh, Lancelot studies saying that they found five different superbugs in COVID-19 patients. So that sounds pretty dire. How does that issue fit into the AMR issue? It's a very prescient issue. And I think uh, we're learning a lot about this COVID-19 pandemic. But I think the first lesson we can learn here is pandemics uh, – are not just sort of a monolithic thing where you get infected with just the coronavirus bug. Um, it's a multifactorial, really complicated thing where people get infected with other things, and that may be actually what's what's the root cause of death. And I have a couple of examples for you. We know that in influenza, 
lots of people who are dying are actually not dying from flu. They're dying from secondary bacterial infections. And the H1N1 pandemic, the 2009 swine flu, depending on who, how you want to describe it, as many as 55% of the deaths worldwide were from bacterial infections. Um, if we go even further back to the 1918 pandemic, you know, the, this is the, the mother of all pandemics. Uh, a paper by our own uh, Dr. Tony Fauci uh, reviewed a lot of old records, and they concluded that almost everyone who died from that was actually from bacterial infections. And mind you, that was 50 million people who died worldwide, and that, that was also in a world where we didn't have antibiotics. Well, you know, we've done a lot of other advances since then. That's a scary corollary here. We need to always remember that a cornerstone of our ability to be prepared for that is a strong arsenal of antibiotics. And if we don't have them, um, we may be saving patients from the COVID-19 or the flu bug, and then they go on to die from a secondary infection they had when they were in the hospitals. We're learning a lot about COVID, but, you know, there's a lot of smoke, maybe not fire yet, that demonstrates that people are dying from secondary infections that are bacterial. Um, we think it's a sizable minority um, uh, of these patients, and I guarantee you a lot of them are going to be resistance. And when you multiply that by how many people are going to get infected with COVID, that's a really scary number. So I think this is something we need to be preparing for as soon as possible. So I think that's why the Disarm Act was actually put into one of these, the CARES package that was um, to respond to the COVID uh, pandemic, um, but it was pulled out. Um, and apparently that's because uh, certain members of Congress didn't uh, want to look like, like in any way they're helping the drug industry. Given that, how would you assess the likelihood that Washington is going to act anytime soon on this? I think there's an appreciation by members of Congress on both sides of the aisle that, that AMR is scary, that we need to do something to address. A lot of people have done a lot of thinking about what's needed to solve this. And looking back into the Disarm Act, Basically, anyone that cares about AMR has looked at this bill and said, this is a good idea. We should do it. Um, yet we're still having so much problems and struggling to find ways to get that political will to really get this bill moving. And so I am hopeful that as, as Congress thinks about what they can do with the, the next COVID package, that they include something on AM, antibiotics, hopefully the Disarm Act. The optics and the challenges uh, of industry remain there. And so uh, I think it still remains a, a bit of a tough uphill fight. Um, I do hope that the, the AMR Action Fund we just mentioned really demonstrates that industry is here at the table trying to solve this problem. We need their help. And we hope that that may reframe this conversation um, so people can appreciate that. Um, well, maybe industry and some members of Congress don't see eye to eye on every issue. This is not one of them. And innovation needs help, and, and they should really help us uh, solve the problem. You know, I mentioned the, the rare disease issue in the Orphan Drug Act and how terrific it's been in making the economics work so that now a lot of children with rare diseases are being saved. Um, and, but, you know, if Congress hadn't passed that yet and it was put on the table today, they probably wouldn't pass it because none of, so many members of Congress are afraid to appear to be doing anything that would benefit um, drug companies. And that's the heart of the political problem. So that is. what are some of the most common and deadly antibiotic-resistant infections? The CDC has a report that they published just last year, and they talk about the urgent threats, the scariest things out there. And these are uh, bugs that are resistant to so many different things. They've been dubbed the nightmare bacteria. And when you ask a physician, what is the scariest thing you can encounter? They often say CRV. Um, and this is a bunch of different bugs that all have a collection of, of resistance mechanisms and shields that protect themselves. 
And these are the kind of bugs that I mentioned earlier where nothing really works for them. Colistin was the only option. And uh, might I add, we've now seen resistance to colistin rising. So now we have very few antibiotics. Only some of those most recently approved antibiotics can really work against these. And while thankfully, um, they're still pretty low in percentage, you know, there's only been a 10 or 15, 20,000 cases in the US, uh, they're increasing over time. And these are the kind of scary things that if we do nothing, they're going to be really widespread in the future. Are these bugs that are picked up in the hospital, or how does how do people become infected with these bacteria? I, I think a lot of these are picked up in the hospital, but not everything. Uh, you know, I think a, another scary bug that uh, is is called a methicillin resistant uh, Staphylococcus aureus or MRSA. A lot of people heard about that, and this used to be actually um, something you only got in the hospital. People came in for surgery. You know, they get an infection. But now what we found is this is a resistant infection that is uh, now can be found in the in the community. And now they call it community acquired MRSA. Someone in a locker room, a kid who fell down, you know, scraped their knee. Uh, and uh, there's a prominent U.S. government official who was gardening and he cut his thumb and he almost lost his thumb due to a MRSA infection. So these are becoming more widespread and moving out of the hospital. And that's really scary as well. And really, I think, emphasizes that point that anyone can get this infection. Do we have any idea how many people die worldwide every year from antimicrobial resistance? I think the, the, the most recent number I've seen is an estimated as they think as many as 700,000 people are dying worldwide wow. from resistant infections. And I would argue that's probably a very low estimate. It's so many different types of infections. No one is really pulling it all together and appreciating uh, the problem for what it is. And I think the most important thing to, to remember is all that medical procedures that we take for granted, surgery, cesarean sections, transplants, cancer chemotherapy, if we do nothing, those are all going to be too risky to do. There's a story in India that really resonates with me. And, and uh, it was a, I, I forget exactly how the headline went, but it said something to the effect of childhood leukemia treatment is deadlier than the cancer. Because at this tier one Indian hospital where resistance is much higher in India because uh, of so much inappropriate use there, they were finding that people that they were trying to treat for leukemia were dying from resistant infections at such a high rate, they were actually halting treatment because they'd live longer if they didn't have treatment. And I think that's a window into our future. And that should scare all of us to really take action. We have time to solve this problem. That's terrifying. The core problem here at the heart of WTF-AMR is that new antibiotics are used sparingly because they're seen as the last line of defense. And a Kagan biotech company has become the, the scary story that biotech investors tell by the campfire to frighten each other. So tell our listeners what happened with that company. Oh, uh, Kagan, I think, is the, the poster child of everything that is wrong in the AMR market. Um, and this is a, a small biotech company uh, that was founded to, to really make a difference on AMR. And actually got a lot of help from the U.S. government to the tune, I think, of a couple hundred million dollars because... This was an antibiotic that could actually be used for, for certain types of bacterial biothreats like plague or tularemia, you know, uh, some scary things out there that, you know, uh, could be used against the U.S. But what happened is when a Cajun went to the market, um, they realized that um, they couldn't sustain themselves. Their product only had $500,000 of sales in the first year. I think someone told me it probably cost two to three million dollars just a month to keep the lights on and manufacturing and, you know, keeping your employees paid and everything else. The delta between what they needed to survive and what they were getting was, was too great. And that doesn't even account to the close to billion dollars they spent just trying to get there. 
And so at the end of the day, a Cajun filed for bankruptcy less than a year after their approval. And it was an absolute fire sale. Uh, you know, all that really important intellectual property, all that great, just innovative, all the great minds in this, they all left to go to other companies. And, and uh, that antibiotic, which cost close to a billion dollars to, to, to uh, bring to patients, was sold for $16 million. And so when investors are thinking about funding the next small biotech with the next great thing, and, they, and they're going to remember, wow, those people invest in Cajun, they lost a lot of money. Well, this is one of those ounce of prevention is worth a ton of cure. It's, it's very much like the pandemic we're experiencing right now, where had we done the right things years ago uh, to be prepared for this, we would have um, had a much different result, saved thousands and tens of thousands of lives, not shut down the economy. And here's a, a case where if, if, if Congress doesn't do what's necessary to incentivize the development of these, of these antimicrobials, it's uh, obviously going to be the case that we're going to pay um, thousands and thousands of fold uh, more in, in death and, and economic destruction and all of the rest. So is this the hardest issue you've ever worked on? Absolutely, hands down. This has been a really tough issue and, and sometimes really frustrating when you talk to everyone and they're like, oh, they swear up and down that this is a really big problem. And then no one wants to solve it. Uh, you know, I think our realization that the COVID pandemic has highlighted that we need to do a better job to, as you said, think about how that ounce of prevention actually makes a difference. Um, we're hoping this will really change the needle. Well, there are about no more than 200 companies worldwide in this antibiotic space. Uh, most of them have fewer than 25 employees. They need money, they need capital, and they need technical expertise. They know that the need is great and that the odds are against them. So what do you tell them? Do you give them hope? Uh, that's a tough question. My message to them would be, we know you are fighting the good fight. And we know that you are in this space against all odds. And you are all smart enough to do anything other than antibiotics. And we are behind you and appreciate everything you're doing. And we are fighting to give you the future you deserve, not only for your own companies, but also those innovative medicines you're trying to bring to patients. So we hope to, to solve this problem as soon as possible. So just, just keep holding on. We're going to get there. Well, I know Bio is uh, doing uh, the Lord's work in trying to get Congress to do what it needs to do. Thank you for your contributions, which have been immense and will continue to be, um, because if you succeed in uh, helping to convince members of Congress to do the right thing, then our companies can succeed in, in making these antibiotics and, um, and we'll save uh, uncountable numbers of lives. So thanks again for being with us. It was a great discussion. Thank you, Jim. I really appreciate the conversation. Well, that's all for today. And that's all for me as your host, as I pass my Yeti microphone on to my successor as Bio President and CEO, Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath. You're going to love Dr. Michelle. She's a doctor, an immunologist, a mother, a policy leader, and a patient advocate, and a yoga instructor in training. I launched the I Am Bio podcast with my producer, Eric, and my audio engineer, Jess, before the coronavirus hit our shores. We've done 25 episodes. Thousands of people now listen every week. I've interviewed vaccine CEOs from CEPI to Moderna, political figures like Joe Lieberman, and patients like Izzy Thorpe, who had her life changed by a cystic fibrosis breakthrough. We've talked about COVID's true origins, how to make a vaccine safe and fast, and how cows can produce antibodies to inoculate people. I've enjoyed every minute of it. 
I'm going to stay involved in biotech and I'm looking forward to spending time with my new grandchild, expected in a couple of months. I leave the pod in incredible hands. You'll definitely want to keep tuning in every Monday with Dr. Michelle. Signing off for now, and please stay informed and stay safe.